Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. Our ushers and some who are helping them are coming forward now. They're going to be distributing uh, the Bible study that we're going to be examining tonight called Into His Marvelous Light. So while they're doing that, I'm going to take some time to share some practical information that maybe you'll find helpful both for uh, teaching, being a part of an Into His Marvelous Light Bible study, as well as any Bible study that you may be teaching. First thing I would say is, number one, don't assume they have a Bible. Amen? I have on more than one occasion uh, bought and given a Bible to the person that I was teaching a Bible study to because they just didn't have a Bible. So uh, you may want to uh, find that out in a kind way in advance. Uh, When you're teaching a Bible study like Into His Marvelous Light, like it's being distributed now, uh, it's meant for you to have one and every participant to have one. So if it's you and a friend, you need two. If it's you and five friends, you need six. So in other words, every person uh, should have their own uh, booklet. Um, Because uh, Into His Marvelous Light happens to be a fill-in-the-blank format, then pens uh, become important. So... You know, these little guys that few of us towed around anymore, but I thought about it and put it in my pocket and robbed it from resources. But pens uh, become important when you're going to teach a Bible study. That is a fill-in-the-blank format or note-taking. Um, the next thing I would share uh, to everyone related, because we're talking about the practical side of teaching someone the truth of how God delivered you from who you used to be that Brother Johns was just talking about. And I would just say this, you will and probably should feel nervous. So if you're waiting till the moment you don't feel nervous to teach a Bible study, um, you're probably never going to teach a Bible study. Not because you doubt God, not because you doubt the power of the Word of God, but I would think, I feel a sense of nervousness anytime communicating truth because of, as uh, Brother uh, Jerry Dean would say, the crushing weight of eternity. When I think about eternity and then what is at stake in sharing the gospel, that ought to make you a little nervous and a little bit um, trying to be on your game. Being nervous, of course, is a normal response. Nobody here wants to be ridiculed. Nobody volunteers to be mocked. Uh, No one uh, wants to be rejected. But what we have to remember is it's not about us. It is about God, and it is about that soul in eternity. And as the epistles make clear for you and I as believers, any rejection or any suffering in this world is going to utterly pale in comparison to the reward and the glory of His acceptance and eternity with Him forevermore. So that kind of has to, what we have to balance. We're going to feel nervous, but we have to understand it's not about us. We move forward in spite of how we feel. I would also say that it's totally fine to not know every answer. As a uh, growing up, somehow I uh, would often maybe self-impose, talk myself out of teaching a Bible study or really even sharing a witness because I was convinced that I wasn't a, because I wasn't a theologian that somehow I was going to get schooled by someone who had an, a basis of false doctrine. But it's okay to not know every answer. What you have in this Into His Marvelous Light Bible study is essential enough to show someone how to be saved. Any questions beyond that may be a, an honest question and may be a question to be uh, answered But it's okay to say, you know what, that is a great question. And fortunately, the Bible always gives clarity to every question that we have. So I just would like to get back with you so that I cannot just give you my opinion, but I can give you a clear biblical answer to your question. That's okay. In fact, that may set you up for another Bible study uh, to be able to follow up and give them a clear answer. Because what, I'll just say this, being honest is a million times better than just making something up. And it's a million times better than saying, well, my preacher says, 
Because now, now we're in a my preacher versus your preacher debate. My religion versus your religion debate. You've lost the game. This is not about my preacher, nor is it about my religion. It's about a Bible study. So if I don't know how to answer from the Bible, that's okay. Nobody knows everything. And I can go back to Scripture and come back with a good biblical answer. And the last thing practically I would say, and I think everyone has their Bible study now, is I don't want to take this for granted, but you should start every Bible study with prayer. Amen? Just start every Bible study with prayer. That God would open up our heart and understanding, guide us into a more full understanding of who He is. Amen? Now, my purpose tonight is not to provide a role play of Into This Marvelous Light. We could be here a long time, but simply to provide you an orientation of what the Bible study, the content of the Bible study, and simply going through it systematically. So I'm going to stick to the script. That's hard. I'm going to stick to the script. I'm not going to give commentary, and I'm not going to pull out my favorite passages. I, like you, have certain passages that come to mind for certain questions, but I'm going to stick to the script. You and I might would write it differently at certain points, but this is an effective tool, and we're going to follow the tool tonight. Now, that being said, every Bible study is dynamic, and every Bible study hopefully is unique and interactive, and quite frankly, I think the more questions that are being asked and the more interactive and conversation that we're having in a Bible study, probably the more effective it will typically be. But for tonight, I'm just giving you an orientation, okay? Now, all that being said, uh, let's look into his marvelous light. And we're going to pause and start with prayer. Follow my own advice, right? We prayed together, I know that. But I want God to let his word be anchored in our heart. Uh, A lot of us are familiar with these passages, but we let ourselves get intimidated. So I want God to anchor his word in our hearts and then anoint that with boldness. His word is anointed, but we need to be anointed with boldness to plant the word of God. So would you join me and let's ask God to to do that over the next few moments. Lord, thank you tonight, God, for your word that is so clear. And God is so clear and simple, yet we can spend our lives studying it and never get our arms fully around it. I pray over the next few moments with this simple Bible study guide that we have, this tool that we have at our disposal, that you would... God, open up our understanding. Let your word be anchored in our minds and memories. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would anoint, God, our hearts and our spirits with a holy boldness. And God, I pray as well that you would, God, give us a spiritual sensitivity that when we are sharing your word, God, we would know when the heart is receptive and when they're ready to respond. God, upon you we are dependent We need you. We lean upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen. 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 That being said, if you'll open up your Into This Marvelous Light, I hope you have your Bible or your favorite app. I'll be reading from the New King James Version tonight because a lot of us have that. Uh, Anything that's in the booklet is King James Version. Uh, The people, you you have no idea what version they're going to be using. But the good news is, it's the good news, and it's probably going to communicate the basic message no matter what translation they have uh, related to the overall plan of salvation. So at the bottom of page 3, you'll see this scripture that's familiar to a lot of us, First Peter 2 and 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, hence the name of the Bible study. As believers, you and I are God's mission to this world. Out of darkness into his marvelous light, that that is our living witness to the world. We were in darkness through this path of, of Scripture. We have come to see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When our witness, when our appearance, when our actions, when our attitude, when that attracts people to want to know what is different about us and what's the power that you live with, then we point them to the same word of truth that saved us. We point them to the scriptures. So now we 
we kind of, the official introduction begins on page four, and kind of from this point forward, I will stick to the script. They give you uh, a background page on page three and kind of give some basic essentials about filling the blank, but really page four launches into uh, the format of the Bible study, and here we go. I think you've probably experienced this before, but have you ever been in a dark room and then you kind of just walk out into the brilliant sunlight? You know, you're kind of disoriented and you see people and their arms are kind of flailing and they, they, they don't even have balance almost. Their senses are completely uh, wiped out momentarily while they acclimate to the brilliance of the sunshine. In a similar way, uh, sometimes the truth of the Bible is like this brilliant light that challenges our understanding and challenges our tradition. And initially, we may feel uneasy or confused, but as our understanding is illuminated by the truth of Scripture, we become empowered to walk in the marvelous light of the Word of God. And so this Bible study is designed to take us on a journey, a journey through the Scriptures, and we're going to concentrate on the highlights from the three main divisions of the New Testament. And as we do this, we're going to be careful, though, as Paul instructed Timothy in his second letter to him, that we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. We're going to stick to what does the Bible say. As we look at the first division being the Gospels, this is the words and the works of Jesus Christ, the acts of the apostles, which are the actions and the preaching of the apostles, and then the epistles, which are the letters that the apostles wrote to the first churches. Now, we believe as kind of a starting point for a Bible study is that the scriptures are divinely inspired and that they are of no private interpretation, that salvation is made clear and nobody has a corner on the market for how to be saved. It's not a closed market. So as we go through this Bible study and any Bible study, it's never our intention to diminish someone's current relationship with Jesus Christ. We take them where they're at and we want to lead them into the way more fully as as their understanding needs to be increased. Neither is this Bible study about our personal ideas or about the creeds or doctrines of any uh, denomination. It is about what does the Bible say. Because only by claiming the Bible as our sole authority for salvation... Only by that can you and I be confident in our personal salvation because in the end, it is the word that is going to judge us. Not a church creed, not a preacher, not a denominational council. It is the Holy Scripture that is going to judge us in the end. So let's begin this journey that we've talked about. And we're going to start, however, by reading 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 through 16. And I would, by the way, recommend that if a person's comfortable reading, that you let them read. You want to avoid monologue like you're getting tonight. Um, So let them read if they're comfortable, but maybe you need to easy figure that out softly, if you know what I mean. Amen? So let's read 2 Timothy 3 and 15 and 16. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So that's our starting point, that the word of God is a guide that makes us wise for salvation. So the first area we're going to look at is the gospel of John's account of the works and the words of Jesus Christ. We're going to start in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, John chapter 1 and verse 1. Please read along. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everybody say, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jumping to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see in our fill in the blank here on page uh, 6 that it is the Word. The Word which was in the beginning and was God became flesh. Jesus Christ is the living Word of God. He is God expressly revealed in the flesh. And then in that same introductory chapter, verse 11, we read, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if we believe in him, and if we receive him, Jesus gives us the power to become the sons of God. And that is the answer to our fill in the blank. How do we become sons of God? By a supernatural birth. And he spoke further about this new birth to a secret follower called Nicodemus one night. And we see that in John chapter 3. Starting again in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's a little confused. He's thinking this is, this is not scientific. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, again, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Why? That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again. When the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can hear it, but you don't know where it comes and you don't know where it goes. You just hear the sound of it. So the Lord told Nicodemus that everyone who wanted to see or enter into the kingdom of God must be born again of water and the Spirit. Water and the Spirit. Now Jesus kept talking to Nicodemus. And further down in verse 16 in the passage, it's familiar to a lot of people. He's, but he's in the conversation with Nicodemus when he says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now, he who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light and his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So Jesus tells Nicodemus now in the back half of the conversation that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. So believes is the fill in the blank. So Jesus mentions two seemingly different answers in the same conversations for requirements of salvation. 
Both are about being born again. One is being born again by water and spirit, but yet later he says it's by believing. But when we look at the whole passage and the whole of scriptures, we can understand it's not a contradiction. And this next scripture that we're going to look at kind of helps us understand that it's all part of the same initiation into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not contradictory. It's not one is right and the other is wrong. It's all together. And we can see this in John chapter 7 and verse 38. It's a great feast. Jesus is at the end and he's trying to communicate to them that he's the fulfillment of everything they're looking forward to. And he says this, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in this brief passage, the teaching of Jesus, we discover that if we believe on him, that we will receive his Spirit, Spirit being the fill in the blame. So we find from reading more Scripture that scriptural belief is more than just a changing in the way that we think. It's more than just a mental decision. But it, scriptural belief will result in scriptural experience. In other words, that belief in the Christ that faith in Jesus Christ, it leads us to obey. And when we obey the scripture, we will experience God's acceptance and God's blessing. And can you say amen to that? So in John chapter 12 and verse 44, Jesus is again teaching, and this is near the end of his ministry. And so you've got to think he's been teaching for three years, and now he's kind of bringing it to a culmination uh, prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you, speaking about himself, Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. A few verses later in verse 42, he's again talking to them and teaching them and says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. Or John is writing, commentary, excuse me. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You know, that's kind of the way it is still today. Human nature hasn't changed a lot. Just as in Jesus today, many people say they believe in him, but they will not confess him according to the scriptures because they fear what others will do or say. So they will not confess him is the fill in the blame. But Jesus kept teaching And he cried out and said in John chapter 12 and 44, He who believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So in response to this fearfulness of some who believed in him, but they did not act on that belief to confess him, or to obey him, Jesus warns that it is his word that will judge us. It is his word that will judge us. So we need to be careful and diligent that we not reject the word of God. Rather, we want to believe it. We want to obey it. 
And no matter what others say or do, if I'm going to be judged by this word, I want to obey what the scriptures tell me. Amen. John chapter 17 is where we're going to read next. This is Jesus' prayer right before he is arrested and ultimately crucified. He's praying for his disciples and for us even today. And we just kind of jump in into the middle of his prayer. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is, everybody say truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Everybody say, that's me. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So in Jesus' prayer for his disciples, just before his crucifixion, he said, God's word is truth. God's word is truth. But he also prayed for us, you and I even in 2016, and for everyone who would ever believe on him through the apostle's word. Everybody say apostle's word. So to find out, how do we find out what was the apostle's word? What were they to preach and what were they to proclaim? Well, we can find out that answer because Jesus told them what to preach and what to proclaim. And we see that in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, chapter 24, which is the very end of the gospel, and verse 45. So these are like the final words of Jesus Christ prior to his ascension that Luke records for us. It says, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tear you in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So now we have two questions to consider based on what Jesus just said. Did the apostles preach what he told them to preach? And what was this promise of the Father? How was it? Fulfilled. These two questions naturally lead us to our next section or division, and that is the Acts of the Apostles. And there we're going to discover what did they, what, how did they obey Jesus, and what was this promise? How was it fulfilled? So if you'll turn to the book of Acts, which follows John. Again, we're going to start in the first chapter and in the very first verse. Everybody look at your neighbor and smile. If they're not awake, they get an elbow. Amen? Only if they're not awake. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So as we enter the book of Acts, we discover almost immediately that the promise of the Father is the baptism of the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Right? One and the same. 
Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. See it used in different places. So what is that promise? It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now we turn to chapter 2, and this is the birthday of the church. This is when everything Jesus had told them was going to happen, this is when it all started happening. Verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly, everybody say suddenly, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Remember, you can hear it, but you don't know where it comes. You don't know where it's going. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So this experience happens on the day of Pentecost, and now we kind of get a narrative that explains what's going on around this place, that there were in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. It's like a, a boom, you know, human curiosity just attracts people. And they came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all now amazed. They're confused. Now they're amazed. And they marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these that speak Galileans? These are all just people from Georgia. They don't know any other language. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, excuse me, and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And just a point of clarity, if you're not comfortable reading that, it is okay to skip those three verses. And you might want to help out and be smart enough that if they're reading for you, just, just give them a bridge right over that, okay? Because unless you're a linguist, that's challenging. Others mocking. So confused, amazed, marveled, mocking, saying they are full of new wine. But here we go now with the great message. But Peter, standing up with the 11, notice Luke tells us all the disciples are accounted for. They're here, they're present. Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, what a voice, no microphone needed preaches these beautiful messages with dynamic voices. I mean, what is that? Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known unto you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day or somewhere around nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So when the apostles were at Jerusalem, they along with many others were joyously filled with the Holy Ghost like we just read. And they began to speak with other Tongues. Everybody say tongues. That's the answer. Or you're filling the blank that you're writing down right now. And they did so as the Spirit gave the utterance or the inspiration for them to speak. The amazed onlookers from many nations heard them speaking with other tongues and they're, they're like, what does this mean? This is uh, supernatural. This is... This is a miracle. And Peter explained that it was the promised coming of the Spirit. And then he went on to preach Jesus Christ. 
and the original plan of salvation. And so we're going to jump through the sermon and we're going to go to the very end, which is recorded in verse 36. And he wraps up his sermon in such a beautiful, powerful way. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That was his sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. We might say convicted. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles. So again, Luke helps us understand. It's Peter and the eleven. They asked Peter and the rest of the apostles. So they're all in on Peter's answer. Then, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So what did we just read? When the people who heard Peter's words believed, everybody write, believed, that Jesus Christ was their Lord and Savior, when they believed, they were convicted or sorry for their sins, and they asked Peter and all the apostles, what do we do? Peter responded by preaching the exact same thing Jesus told him to preach. Let's look at that. Notice that what Jesus told them to preach in Luke 24 that we just read a few moments ago lines perfectly. Peter was, didn't have to be a brilliant theologian. He just preached Jesus and he just told them what Jesus said to tell them. Repentance, remission of sins through baptism in Jesus' name and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost which was the promise of the Father. Peter preached what Jesus told the apostles to preach. Also notice, and you've got the neat little box in your Bible study, that what Peter preached was the fulfillment of the two new birth requirements that Jesus told Nicodemus. Water birth, baptism in Jesus' name. Spirit birth, infilling of the Holy Ghost. So Peter's message absolutely aligned to what Jesus told us about the entering into the kingdom of God being born again of water and the Spirit, and repenting of sins and remission of sins and experiencing the promise, it all lines up with Peter's answer to repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And if you've experienced that, say amen. Amen. Now, that's not the only time this happened. The church exploded. Believers began to not only believe in the Christ, they began to obey the apostles' message. And many were added to the church every day. So in Acts chapter 8, we have an account where Philip goes to Samaria to preach. Because even today, some people say that when they believe in Jesus in their heart, or when they experience joy, or when they're baptized, that they're automatically filled with the Holy Ghost. Many people are taught that. But we're going to look at Acts chapter 8 where Philip is preaching to the Samaritans which was a mixed culture of Jews and Gentiles. And what does the Bible say? How does the Bible answer those statements? So in chapter 8 and verse 5 tells us that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. This is just an aside. I'm supposed to stick to the script. But Acts was not quite church. They didn't have quite church in the book of Acts. It was loud and messy. Back to the script. Verse 8. And there was great joy in that city. So now we are doing checking yes or no, right? Following the format. 
So did they have great joy? Yep, they did. Verse 12, continuing in the narrative. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So did they believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, they had joy. They believed. Verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So were they baptized in his name? Yes. And did they receive the Holy Ghost as a separate and distinct experience? So they had joy, they believed, they were baptized, but the the scriptures say they had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can also look to Acts chapter 10 where Peter preaches to Cornelius, the first recorded Gentile convert, answers those same questions we just talked about. And this passage, like Acts 8, also helps us understand that spirit baptism, evidenced by speaking in tongues, was not just for the day of Pentecost. It was not just some unique experience so all the nations at Jerusalem would believe that this was from God. It was normative for the church. Acts chapter 10, starting in the first verse. There was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So was Cornelius a religious man? He was on the board of deacons, a religious man. Verse 5. And we're, verse 5, we're jumping now into the middle. He, this religious man has a vision. And the angel of the Lord speaks to him and says, Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Everybody say, must do. So did God have more for this religious man to do? Yes. A brilliant audience tonight. Acts chapter 10 verse 44. We jump to the end of Peter's message. Peter gets a vision. He ends up going. He begins to preach Jesus Christ. It's a really short sermon. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, being Jewish Christians, that's what he's talking about, Jewish Christians, those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered. Yeah, then Peter answered. And we stopped there. That isn't a rough place to stop. But that's the script. And it threw me. So if it throws you, guess what? It's okay. Smile and move on with the Bible study. So our question, did they receive the Holy Ghost and speak in tongues after the day of Pentecost? Yeah, we just read Acts chapter 8. We are reading in Acts chapter 10. After Pentecost, they received the Holy Ghost and they spoke in tongues. Now we get to continue And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now he finally tells them what they must do. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So did they still have to be baptized in Jesus' name? Yes. 
So they received it. They believed on it. While he's preaching, the Holy Ghost falls on them. They, they can't deny it because their evidence of speaking in tongues is there. But there's still more for them to do. And he commands them, just like the angel said he would do, what they must do, which was to be baptized in Jesus' name. Then we turn to Acts chapter 19 because the church keeps growing. And now the apostle Paul is traveling the world and, and preaching the gospel. And in Acts 19 uh, we, is a context where it's important to us because many people uh, say they are believers, but they genuinely have never really known or heard that the Holy Ghost is truly for them. And there are some believers who say that baptism isn't necessary or doesn't matter what is spoken when you're baptized. And they may be very sincere believers. But when we look at Paul's uh, preaching to the disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19, we see the essentiality of both receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost and of being baptized in Jesus' name. So in Acts chapter 19 and verse 1, And it happened... While Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. These were believers. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So they were believers... But, they, but had they heard of or had they received the Holy Ghost? No. It's a kind of a trick question because actually the answer is no. We've been yes, 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 yes. Now we have a no. So what does that tell us? Again, be- receiving the gift of the Spirit is not automatic to believing. They were believers But Paul steps right in in his sermon and says, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He continues, verse 3, And he said to them, Unto what then were you baptized? It must matter if Paul wanted to know. So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying, to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. So Paul doesn't say, well, you're wrong. He just says, well, that's great, but what you, how you were baptized was pointing to one who was going to come, and in him is the fulfillment of what everything John taught you. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So did those baptized by John the Baptist have to be rebaptized in Jesus' name? Yes. And oftentimes, in our, my experience, right over here or here, people genuinely do not understand a need to be rebaptized. I'm pausing off the script, okay? And you don't challenge where they're at or what they've experienced or that they're a believer. But we show them the way more fully in that, well, the scriptures teach us that being baptized in the name of Jesus is the culmination of everything that you've been taught. And he is the name of the Father. He is the name of the Son. He is the name of the Holy Ghost. But we have to take on his name because his name is the only saving name. And in Acts chapter 19, we have a precedent that if we've been baptized in any other way, we should make sure we take on the name of Jesus. That's why Acts 19 is important. Amen? And it happens here and there and there regularly. And people take on the name of Jesus. Back on the script. Verse 6, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So, was receiving the Holy Ghost accompanied by the initial evidence of speaking in other tongues? Yes. Did they have to be rebaptized? Yes. So, 
Let's review what we have seen from the scripture so far. The apostles preached this message just like Jesus told them to. They preached the life of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. They preached repentance towards God and believing upon him as Savior. They preached uh, remission of sins by baptism in water, by immersion in Jesus' name. And they taught to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit accompanied by the initial evidence of speaking with other tongues. It's what Jesus taught, it's what Jesus told them to preach, and it's what they preached. The Bible is pretty clear. But now, there's a third division of the New Testament, which is the epistles, or the letters of the apostles to these early churches. So what did Peter say about the message he preached, uh, both in Acts 2 and Acts 10 and other places? In his letter, 1 Peter 1 and 22, this is what he had to say about it. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So how did they purify their soul? Peter said, because you obeyed the truth through the Spirit. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because, and now he quotes Isaiah 46 through 8, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and it, the, its flowers falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Then he goes back to his preaching. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So Peter says, the word of God that is forever established in heaven. This is the word of God that you have obeyed and your soul has been purified and this is the gospel that's been preached to you, the word of God. Later in this letter, Peter asked a very important question to them in chapter 4 in verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter has this question to believers, Christians, spirit-filled, to say what is going to happen to people who do not obey this gospel that has purified our souls. Paul provides an answer in one of his letters where he's writing to believers who are being persecuted by people who are not believers. And we find that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. And this is what Paul writes. He's trying to encourage people that are being bombarded by opposition. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when... The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What is Paul saying how is he answering Peter's question? What's going to happen if we don't, do not believe or obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul says that the grace that all of humanity lives under today will not always be and that we will all ultimately step from time into eternity and that we will all stand before God at the judgment. What else did Paul say in his letters uh, respected to what we're talking about tonight. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul writes a real short introduction. He jumps right into what he wants to say to the Galatians, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. You've got some in you and they're trying to take you a different way. That's what he's writing them about. But even if we or an angel from heaven Preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you. Let him be accursed. 
There were people writing letters all over the place in this culture and early church history. Paul said, I don't care if a letter comes and it's got my name on it. If it says anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. By his tone of his writing, Paul is like upset. This is his church. These are people that he's preached to and someone's trying to come teach them a different doctrine and he writes to them to say, if anybody preaches any other gospel, let them be accursed. He makes crystal clear that there is only one saving gospel and it is the gospel delivered to us by the apostles recorded in scripture. So it's not my doctrine or your doctrine Paul says there is one gospel and every other gospel is a curse. It's the gospel preached by the apostles and it's recorded in the Bible. What did James say related to the message of the apostles? We find that in his letter, James chapter 1 and verse 21. He says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What is it that saves my soul? The word. What did Peter say purifies my soul? The word. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer... He is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Paul says, if you hear this word that's able to save your soul and you don't obey it, it's like going into the, rest, you know, into the restroom at a restaurant and realizing you got ketchup halfway up your face and then turning around and walking out the door forgetting to wipe your face off except a lot more consequential than being embarrassed in a restaurant. So James says, what is this about the apostles' message and preaching? He gives us the secret. He makes plain. How should you respond? How should I respond? By being a doer of the word, by being obedient to the word that saves my soul. Amen. Look at your neighbor and say, I want to be a doer. So as we wrap up our study, let's consider what we have learned. And now we bring it, everything that we've been teaching culminates in these questions. Do you believe that the word of God is true and will judge us? And they're going to respond. Do you believe Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? Do you believe it is necessary to repent by determining to turn from sin and giving your life to God? Do you believe water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ is the biblical way to be baptized? Do you believe the baptism of the Holy Ghost is for you today? And when you receive it, you will speak in other tongues, a language you've never learned, just as they did in the Bible. Yes. And then there's uh, comments about, let's pray right now, if you believe. And I would say, as you conclude into His marvelous light, or any Bible study, it is vital that you be spiritually sensitive to the receptivity and spiritual hunger of the person you're teaching. It would not be wise to slap your hand on their head and start talking in tongues and not even sure that they even believe in Jesus Christ. Just because you have chill bumps down your spine is not confirmation that they are ready. 
We need the wisdom of the Holy Ghost. And I don't know, I can't tell you how to get that other than pray and consecration. But on the other hand, if they've received the word with faith, if they're ready to repent, if they're ready to be baptized, if they're ready to receive the Holy Ghost, we should not miss that opportunity. The Holy Ghost doesn't have to be scheduled for Sunday at 9 o'clock. The baptism's ready 24-7. If they're ready, you, got, you have to be ready. Amen? Sometimes we can... I've been there, okay? Teach the Bible study and then want to chicken out of the prayer at the end because, you know, we're kind of like not at church. Amen? But God, help us not to just slap our hands on their head and start talking in tongues, but neither miss the moment of the power of God's Word that generated faith that's saving faith, and they're ready to respond in obedience. So we have to be spiritually sensitive. Amen? If you're able, please stand. The worship team's coming. Thank you for your patience. You're not going to teach it that quick. Amen? I think, I like this, by the way. I have a hard time not going off. I have favorite passages. But I think that this Bible study lends itself to set up the next Bible study. Someone's got to really be engaged to go through all of this in one setting. But if all you get through is the Gospels, you've, made, you've put an anchor point of truth down that is enough if that's all you ever get. Okay, So don't, don't miss the Gospels by trying to rush through the end in an hour. When you get to the end of the Gospels on page 7, look at your clock. And if you need to honor their time, honor their time because it's, it's a beautiful halfway point, if you would, and it sets up a second opportunity to have a Bible study and start back up on page 8. So I'll just leave that out for you. And then I just want to kind of conclude and bring it together by echoing everything that Brother Johns has been preaching over the last few weeks, that our mission is just to plant the seed and then to pray over the harvest. We are not responsible for the soil. I'm not responsible. I can't see below the surface that there's rock that far below. I can't see that there's a lot of seeds of weeds that's going to come up. That's not my job. My job is to plant the seed. And then it's to water it with prayer. And into his marvelous light is a practical, easy tool for planning the Word of God. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have a lot of Scripture memorized. You just need to be able to follow the script and pray. And pray for wisdom and pray for sensitivity. And then just passionately and persistently pray for the harvest. This works. Is everybody going to respond? No, some mocked. Not everybody heeded the apostles' words. I've taught this message and had people nod their head, nod their head, nod their head, and never do something about it. But I've seen enough people go to the waters of baptism and experience the gift of the Holy Ghost by just the simple truths of the few passages we shared tonight. So would you come and would you join us up front if you have time? It's 8.50, full clarity. If you've got to get up at 4 in the morning, God bless you. No one holds that against you. But if you're able, would you join us at the front of the altar? And I'm going to ask you that we pray a similar prayer again. If you're able, please join us. If you're not, God bless you. Please teach these Bible studies. They're for sale. You have yours. They're for sale in the Welcome Center for a dollar. That's not what they cost, but we're underwriting it to the best of our ability. But if you're able, join me. And I would invite you to pray this prayer. One, Lord, would you lead me to a hungry soul? Second, Lord, would you give me boldness to seize the opportunity?
And then third, Lord, would you give the harvest? Would you pray that here this evening before we go out and put into practice what we've talked about tonight? They're going to sing, but would you join me in that prayer? Lord, lead me to a hungry soul. Lord, give me boldness. And God, would you, God, give the harvest? Let's lift up our voices all across this place. Come on. Come on. Who knows who you're going to meet this weekend? Who knows who you're going to meet tomorrow? And they're ready. Would you lift up your voice? Let's cry out to the Lord together in the name of Jesus Christ as they sing. That's it. Lift up your voice. Let's pray that prayer in Jesus' name.